Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you this morning. My name is Brandon. Uh, like Aaron said, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community here. And like Aaron was saying, uh, small groups is the best way to do that, where you can figure out your faith and live out your faith. And so we just love to invite you into that kind of a community. So excited as well. Love to invite you into our summer series as well. We're This summer we're in a series uh, called Jesus on Every Page. And what we're doing throughout the summer is we're taking a look at a bunch of different Old Testament passages. And some you've probably heard of before, some maybe you haven't. And what we're doing is we're highlighting how all of them aren't ultimately about just teaching us some moral lessons about what we should or shouldn't be doing or about who we should or shouldn't be like. But instead, they're all primarily meant to point us to the person and the work of Jesus. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her book, The Jesus Storybook Bible, puts it this way. She says, the Bible's a story and at the center of that story is Jesus. Every story whispers his name. He's like the missing piece of the puzzle that makes all the others fit together. And so the beautiful picture of the gospel gets revealed. See, the, the idea that, that the, the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, is really ultimately about God and the gospel, that's not something some brilliant pastor or theologian came up with. We've seen in our study that that's what Jesus taught. In John 5, he, he, he addresses the religious leaders and he, he tells them that the life and the blessing and the favor from God that they're looking for so diligently by keeping the law, that, that those things can only be found by instead by seeing Jesus as the one to whom all the laws point. And in Luke 24, after his resurrection, we see how beginning with Moses and the prophets that Jesus explains to his disciples all that's said in the scriptures about him. And so at the heart of our series this summer is learning to read the Old Testament the way Jesus did, with him at the center of all of it. And this morning, uh, we're going to do just that as we take a look at Exodus chapters 19 and 20. And uh, what we find there is the Ten Commandments. Right, if, there's, if there's one place in the Bible that feels especially like it's just a list of rules that you're supposed to keep, it, it's the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, it's literally a list of commands, right? Like it, that feels like a list of rules. But what I want to show you this morning is that while the Ten Commandments do indeed show us the way God wants us to live, they aren't ultimately about regulating what we should and shouldn't be doing. Instead, they're actually about revealing who God is both to us and through us and about responding to what he's already done, not what we're supposed to be doing. And so uh, so if we'll look at them from that perspective, not only will we be able to understand God's commands rightly, what we'll actually do is we'll have the power and the motivation to actually be able to obey them and keep them. So can't wait to show you that this morning. Let's pray and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into God's word together. Jesus, thanks so much for you. Thanks uh, for your word and your commands uh, that, that you just repeatedly remind us in the New Testament are good and right and true. And so we pray as we take a look at the Ten Commandments this morning and as your commands as we seek to live as your people, God, we pray that you would help us to see them rightly, not just as a list of like a checklist of stuff we need to be doing or not doing, but instead as an invitation to respond to all that you have already done and to live as a people who reflect you and declare you to the world. And so uh, help us to reorient our perspective that way and help us to see you as the one who keeps them all for us. And so we pray, amen. Well, again, this morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. Uh, We're going to read just a little chunk in 19 that sets up 21st. begins this way. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. 
And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and, the Israel, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, and he said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. For you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you fully, now if you obey me fully and keep my commands, then of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. And so Moses went back and he summoned the elders of Egypt and he, or the elders of the people and he uh, set them before all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. And so Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall, not, you shall do, not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals or any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land that your Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, like I mentioned earlier, right? If there's one place in the Bible that feels like it's just a list of rules that you need to follow, it's this one, right? Uh, we literally refer to the commands or the instruction God gives Moses here as the Ten Commandments, right? If that's not a list of rules, I don't know what is, right? But while the Ten Commandments do indeed give us some guidelines for how we should and shouldn't live, it's not just a list of rules that tell us what we need to be doing in order to earn something from God or, or get something from Him. Instead, it's a guide that shows us how to respond to what God Himself has already done. That's the first thing I want to show you this morning, is that the Ten Commandments, right, they're a guide that shows us how to respond to what God Himself has already done. Now make no mistake about it, God wants to adjust the behavior of the people that he's just rescued, but, but before he tells them anything to, to do, before he gives them any commands, he re first reminds them about who he is and about who they are because of all that he's already done. Verse tw 2 of chapter 20, he says it this way, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, God reveals himself as the Lord, right? That's all caps. Whenever you see that in your Bible, it's L-O-R-D, Lord, all caps. That's the, that's the, the nomenclature for God's, God's covenant name, Yahweh. And God's saying, I am the one true God, the sovereign, eternal creator and king of everyone and everything. 
thing, who, who we saw last week just had just powerfully and miraculously rescued his people out of hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, and as chapter 19, verse 4 put it, right, carried them on eagles' wings and brought them to be with him. Where after centuries of them being called slaves, in verse 5, God instead refers to them as his treasured possession. That's not all. In verse 6, we see that they're his commissioned people. He calls them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. To be holy is to be set apart for something. And and the thing that God sets them apart for is to to be his representatives, his priests, as it were. Priests serve as God's representatives. And so God's saying, I have saved you. You are my treasured people whom I love, whom I've already rescued, and I've set you apart for this incredibly important purpose. He says, he's the God who saved. They're his treasured people, his commissioned representative, his ambassadors, and what they've been set apart from, they've been set apart from the world in order that they might show the world the glory of the God who has saved them. See, and it's the context of remembering the salvation that God's won for them and and this new identity they have as his beloved commissioned people, that that's the context in which God lays out the kind of life he wants them to live because here's this foundational biblical truth, right? The only way that you know what you're supposed to do is when you know who God is and who you are because of what he's already done. That's the only way you really know who you are supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. And so the the Ten Commandments, they aren't just a list of rules to obey so that you can get on God's good side or stay on his, or earn or merit his favor, right? They're a guide that shows us what it looks like to respond to the unmerited, undeserved, rescuing, saving grace of God that he's already shown people by rescuing them out of slavery and by commissioning them as his people in the world. And so the the question that you have to ask then, right, is that what's the connection then between the Ten Commandments and between the identity and the calling that God's given his people, right? What's the connection there? Because they seem very linked, right? Why is obedience to these commands, why is that the framework that God gives for living as his priest, as his representative in the world? And that brings us to the second thing I need to show you this morning about the Ten Commandments, See, the reason why obedience to God's commands is so intrinsically intertwined with with our identity and calling as the people of God is because God's commands, they don't just show us what he wants. They don't just show us what he wants. They show us first and foremost what he is like. They show us what he's like. You see, in other words, God's commands, they reveal his character See, the Ten Commandments, they're they're not just some arbitrary list of rules that God made up based on how he was feeling that day, right? They weren't like a problem-solution kind of thing. They were a revelation of his very being. That's why Jesus and the New Testament writers, they all reiterate the inherent goodness of God's commands because they're a reflection of him. They're not just an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. They're a reflection of his character. For example, when when God tells us in the first and second commands that we're to worship him supremely and exclusively, that we're to have no other gods in front of him, that we're not to worship anyone or anything else, he's not just saying that he doesn't want us to worship anyone or anything because he's jealous. He's telling us he has the right to be jealous because he's the only one who is worthy of being worshipped. 
He's the only one who's worth being the overwhelming, controlling influence in our life. No one and nothing else deserves it. Likewise, when God tells us not to steal or murder or commit adultery, he's not just saying, hey, these things are bad, don't do them. He's saying, these things are at odds with my very character. This is not who I am. Because God is a God who provides generously and who satisfies our deepest desires. And so stealing, it proclaims a lie that he isn't those things. And God is a God who values life, life made in his image. And when we murder and when we hate, what we're doing is we're proclaiming lies because that's not who God is. And God is one who is relentlessly faithful. And when we commit adultery, what we're saying is that the God whose image we bear is not faithful. See, what that all means is that that because the identity and calling of God's people is to respond to his saving grace by living as his representatives, the way that we do that then is not primarily with songs and sacrifices. See, the way that we live as God's representatives right, is it's by obedience to his character revealing commands. If God's commands show what he's like, then we live as his representatives. We proclaim him to the world by living in such a way that reflects him to the world. You see, seeing God's commands as a, as a revelation of his character, it's the, it's the key to understanding them in the first place, but it's also the key to understanding their ongoing role in our lives. I think everyone who's earnestly read the Old Testament has, has had the question, so which, which of these commands still apply to us? Like, what, do we, what do we do with that, right? Well, I figure the murder command probably still applies, right? Probably the adultery one, but like, What's this stuff to do with the Sabbath and about honoring your parents? Like, is that, is that still for today? Like, what's going on there? And that's, that's just the Ten Commandments, right? What about all the weird stuff you find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? About not eating bacon or shellfish or about not wearing mixed fiber clothing or about making sure you build fences around your roof or about not cutting your beard, right? Well, I mean, I think like the not cutting your beard one, that makes sense, right? I mean, have you guys seen, like, like a good beard is, that's just really a great thing, right? You know? <laughs> In all seriousness, though, right, it matters how we approach that stuff, right? Because a lot of people just tend to end up picking and choosing based on some gut feeling. Like, I don't know, that just one seems like it shouldn't be there anymore. Or, or we just decide, like, that one would be way too costly to obey. You see, and if our identity and our calling as God's people is connected with our obedience, then it's really important that we think about what it looks like for us to follow God's commands. But also, it's really important that we think carefully through that because so many people just think that Christians are either inconsistent or hypocritical on this stuff. I've seen lots of people walk away from the Bible and God's, God altogether because they just think Christians are just like inconsistent. This doesn't make any sense. You say one thing over here, and there's one thing over here. They, they contrast. And so answering the questions about the role of God's commands in our lives, it's not only good and important, it's necessary for us to do if we want to live out our identity as his representatives. And so one of the most helpful ways to approach those questions I've found is to, is to understand that when you take a look at God's commands in the Old Testament, right, what you see is that all of them fall into kind of one of three basic categories 
And the first type of laws are what we refer to as ceremonial laws. These are laws that govern the worship at the temple and the way people are to approach God, right? And they have to do with the layout of the temple and what things were clean or unclean and the whole order of the sacrificial system and that kind of stuff. And they, those kinds of laws, they highlighted God's holiness and, his, and humanity's sinfulness. And, and they were intended to emphasize the reality of the gap between a holy God and a sinful people. What we see in the first half of the book of Hebrews is that it's all about showing us how all those laws were ultimately meant to foreshadow the, the redemptive work of the person and work of Jesus in the gospel, and which is why we don't sacrifice animals here on Sundays, which is really convenient because that is a huge mess, right? But it's ultimately about the idea that we don't need lesser temporary sacrifices because Jesus is the ultimate one. And through his life and his death on the cross, he completely fulfilled all that those ceremonial laws were pointing to. And then there's the civil laws, right? Laws that govern the nation of Israel. These are laws about taxes and charging interests, and especially about the different kinds of punishments for different sin or crime. And these are good to study because they show us the breadth of the things that God cares about, and they help us to get a sense for God's sense of justice. But they don't apply to us anymore because you and I are not living in a theocracy, right? right? We are no longer bound by the civil codes of Leviticus because God does not have a nation state on earth anymore, right? Jesus started a new Israel, a spiritual Israel. That's the church. And so God's people are not an ethnic nation there are spiritual people whose faith is, comes with the person and the work of Jesus. And so there's ceremonial laws and there's civil laws, but lastly there are moral laws. And these laws are laws that declare what God deems to be right and wrong, good and evil. And the moral laws they're based upon and they reflect God's moral character. And while Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they flesh that out in a lot of detail, God's moral law is summed up in the Ten Commandments and even further simplified by Jesus in Matthew 22 when he sums them all up and he says that the heart of the commands is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. What we see is that Jesus fulfills the moral law just as he did the other two. But these laws are still in effect for us today because they're a reflection of God's moral character and God's moral character doesn't change. In fact, whenever Jesus mentioned the moral laws in the Old Testament, he either reaffirms them or he intensifies them. Right? Because the things that were offensive to God and harmful to people are still offensive to him and harmful to us. So he sees that Jesus' the fulfillment of these laws doesn't get rid of them. Instead, the difference that the gospel makes is that it actually empowers us to follow God's commands in a way that we never could have before. And so where the civil laws and the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled by Christ and done away with, what we see is that God's moral commands are fulfilled by Christ in such a way that empowers us to keep them. And that brings us to the third thing that you have to understand about the Ten Commandments. Right? They're a response to what God's already done. They reveal his character. But you have to see, they cannot save you. And they can't change you. See, the Ten Commandments are, they're not just a guide that shows us what it looks like to respond to God's grace by revealing who he's, what he's like to us and through us. The Ten Commandments, they kind of serve like a spiritual MRI. See, an MRI machine, what it does is that it can show you what a healthy body looks like, and it can show you what a sick body looks like, but it cannot cure you. 
It's a diagnostic tool, not a cure. And the diagnosis every one of us gets under the spiritual MRI of the Ten Commandments is that our hearts are sick with the disease of sin. So you look at the Ten Commandments and you and I, we fail every single one of them. All ten of them, we don't pass any of them. Because you and I, we haven't loved God exclusively and we haven't always worshipped Him rightly and we haven't always honored His name or rested in Him and we haven't honored our parents always and, and we may not have killed somebody or slept with someone who's not our spouse, but Jesus says, if you've hated someone or lusted after them in your hearts, then you've broken these commands already. And we've all stolen things, maybe things like time or, or credit from work, not just stuff. And, and we've certainly all coveted other people's things and possessions and relationship. When you look at the Ten Commands, they're a list that all of us hopelessly, endlessly fail at keeping. Not only do we not pass a single one of them, when we look at them, we're struck by the reality that the desires of our hearts often go in the exact opposite direction. And that leads us to seeing the commands as these restrictive chains, these things that hold us back from experiencing what we think real life and freedom might be, which just further reveals the depravity and the wickedness of our hearts. See, the commands reveal the character of a holy God, and you and I are not inclined to follow any of them, especially the first one. See, the same is true for the Israelites. It's not just you and me, it was true for them. At the end of the first five books of the Bible, you see Moses gives this, this speech at the end, and he basically tells them, hey, um, like God's given us these commands, and what I am real sure of is that you will never keep them. You've proven that they've, they've proven over the years that they were incapable of doing it, and he was right. But if you read the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to see this over and over again this summer. Right, God's people continually, repeatedly, they fail to obey his commands. It's like watching a much more tragic and way less funny version of Wipeout. Right? Like, you know that like, someone's just going to face plant. It always happens. It's just a matter of time. And so Moses said that the problem is that their hearts were hard and they were going to need new transformed hearts if they were ever going to truly follow God's commands. And so you see the spiritual MRI of the Ten Commandments, what it reveals is that we have hearts are sick with the disease of sin and that what we need most is a new heart. What we need is a new transformed heart. And this is where the gospel gets incredibly good because the message of the gospel Right? It's not just that God comes to forgive sins, but it's that he comes to give us his own heart. To put his heart within us. And he comes to obey the commands that we fail for us. You see, Jesus perfectly obeyed every command. Not only did he love God with all his heart and soul and mind or strength, he loved more than his neighbor, he loved his enemy as himself. You see, and where we fail, he did not. See, he lived a perfect life of worship and a perfect life of obedience. And in coming to earth as a human and in living and dying in our place, what happens is that Jesus makes possible the, the what Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesied, that they said that one day God would come and he would remove people's hard hearts of stone and he would put within them soft hearts of flesh, hearts that he would write his law on, not just tablets of stone, but he'd write his law on our heart. And what he's saying is that, is that we wouldn't just know what God wants, but that we would long to obey. That God would give us hearts 
that aren't just capable of obeying, but that long to do it. And so at the heart of the gospel is the message that Jesus lived and that he died so that you and I might receive new hearts, his hearts. Hearts that lead us to live lives characterized by worship and obedience to God's good commands. See, but what the gospel also helps us to see is that the only way you get his heart is by acknowledging that yours is sick and that you can't fix it. See, that you and I, we need God to give us new hearts. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that you cannot save yourselves, and yet the one who can has already come to do it for you. See, when you see that reality, when you see this tension between your inability to keep God's goods commands and your inability to save yourself, and yet you see him coming to keep the commands for you and to be for you what you could not be for yourself, it changes you. It transforms you. You see, it fundamentally changes the way that you look at the Ten Commandments then, right? They, they become not just a list of rules that you have to keep or some list of rules that holds you back from being the thing or person you want to be. They're this guide that shows us what it looks like to live in the freedom that God's won for his people, Right there, they show us what it looks like to live a life spent doing what we were designed to do, to, to worship the one whose image we bear and to reflect his goodness and his character and glorify him in all that we do. Not, not in order to get something from him, but because he's already given us everything. Trevin Wax, he's a, an author, a pastor, he sums it up this way. He says, some people think that in order to be free from slavery to sin, they need to begin living this way. Once we live according to the Ten Commandments, we'll be free. We'll, we'll attain salvation. But the Bible teaches that it's the other way around. God's grace comes first. You see, the commandments aren't given to Israel until they've been brought out of slavery. Why? Because in bondage, they could not have lived this way. See, they've been brought out of slavery and shown mercy so that they could live a new way. See, the same is true for us. We don't keep the commands in order to experience salvation. We experience salvation in order that we might now be able to keep the commands. Kevin DeYoung, he puts it this way. He says, salvation is not the reward for obedience. It is the reason for obedience. See, God's law, it shows us what it looks like to live life to the full, to live as God designed that we might live, as his image-bearing, his representatives in the world. And the gospel empowers us to pursue that kind of life, not out of duty and obligation, not out of fear, right, but out of love and gratitude for all that God has already done in saving us. There's this old hymn by John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, and I love to quote it, but... In it, he talks about this fundamental difference that the gospel makes to the way that we perceive God's commands. And he says it this way. He says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law of, by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. See, what happens is that the good news of the gospel, it transforms God's commands. And instead of them being a duty and an obligation, it empowers us to see them as this joyful invitation to respond to a God who's already saved us. It transforms them. 
And so every week when we take communion, that's what we're remembering and celebrating. We're remembering all that Jesus has already done for us. And we're reminding ourselves about his body and his broken that we're his blood that were broken and shed so that you and I might be free from the sickness of sin and that we might be given new hearts that can not only love God but can long to obey him. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it, it doesn't save your doesn't change your status or your standing with him in any way. Instead it's a it's an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus and to to remind ourselves about all that he has done and about who we are because of him. And so as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you put your trust in Jesus, if he's the one who has kept the commands on your behalf and who empowers you out of love for him to keep them yourself, then I want to encourage you, go back during our time of communion and dip the bread in the juice. There's a table in the back on the left and the right, and you can do that as a reminder of all that he's done for you and all he's made you to be because of him. But if you're, if you're not yet, if you're, you're still here, if you're coming here this morning, you're still figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, and, and maybe you find yourself still relying on your own obedience to keep the commands, or you just see, right, you see obedience as the, the, as the, as the as salvation is the reward for obedience, not the reason for it, then I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that's, that believes and that trusts that he's done all that is necessary to make us right with him. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is, and we would love to help you get to know him. But wherever you're at this morning, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Ask him to remind you about the good news of the gospel about Jesus who's come to live the life that we were supposed to live as his image-bearing representatives and who died the death that you and I deserved so that we might have salvation through him, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And ask, you, ask him to remind you of, of who he is and of who you are because of all that Jesus has done so that your obedience to his commands might flow out of responding to the salvation and grace he's already shown you, not the other way around. And that you might be empowered to live as his people, his representatives in the world, declaring and demonstrating the God who has rescued you. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he has. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for you this morning. And we're so glad that we get to come to you, not with hearts full of duty and obligation, but ones that are full of love for you because we're responding to all you've already done for us. And we pray, God, that you would keep reorienting our hearts and so that we might see your commands not as a list of rules to follow, but instead as an invitation to respond and to be the people you've made us to be and to respond to all that you've already done for us. And so might, uh, might our salvation be the reason for our obedience? Help us to see that the gospel empowers us to live in obedience to you out of love for you because of all you've done. Keep shaping our perspectives, Lord God. Empower us to live as your kingdom people in the world, we pray. Amen.